I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Helen Hadani, author of The Emotionally Intelligent Child, Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids. As the day-to-day effects of the pandemic ease, our children have been left with having to play catch-up, learning the social tools and skills that parents of young children took for granted just three short years ago. To help them, parents need a new toolbox to foster their child's emotional intelligence, an essential character trait for children to succeed in our fast-paced social society. Rachel Katz and Dr. Helen Hadani offer an innovative approach that breaks the mold on parenting. They share relevant research on social and emotional awareness to help parents understand how their child's mind is developing, as well as providing powerful tips on how to help children build emotional intelligence to navigate the conditions of our times. Dr. Hadani is currently a fellow at the Brookings Institute, where she conducts policy-focused research on the benefits of playful learning in both formal and informal contexts. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hadani. Nice to have you on this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. First question is, why is it that children's social and emotional development is so important? And as you have said, is often more challenging than the academic learning, which we tend to focus on. Parents tend to focus on, I think, more on the academic learning than on the social emotional development. Yeah, that's a really great question. And what, what really motivated my co-author, Rachel Katz, and I to write this book is that um, you know, when children go to school, it's, you know, they're, they're learning math, they're learning science, um, literacy skills, and those are all things that, you know, there are many resources um, that, that parents have to guide that learning and, for, and teachers as well. But in the social-emotional realm, it's not, as, it's not as obvious as how to support children's social-emotional learning. And one area of research that we talk about a lot in the book, and that it's not really known so much outside the academic world, is called theory of mind. And this is really about understanding your, our own sort of what we call mental states. Those are emotions, our intentions, our beliefs, our desires, um, and those of other people. And that's something that's really a really important development, especially in the early years. We talk about it from, you know, birth up through about age eight. Um, and it's something, again, that not a lot of parents or educators are aware of, that children develop this understanding about how their feelings and beliefs and desires impact and shape their interactions with other people. And impacts their cognitive learning, obviously. I mean, I'm just stating the obvious. But, yeah, I think we just sort of fall short when, in terms of having an understanding of that. So what do we do? I mean, how do we address this in the context of all the stuff that gets in the way? COVID-19, uh, you know, we have so many different uh, cultural and social uh, things that impact us in a negative way, and we need to, I assume, be addressing these issues with our children. Yes, definitely. And so we talk about, you know, in addition to, you know, theory of mind, we talk about a few other areas of research that um, really give us guidance. Um, and um, we, we take that research, and then we offer practical tips in the book. 
for parents. So I'll take one example is that we talk about language development and how language development is really um, key for uh, supporting children's social and emotional development. Um, children are learning. One key thing is that children are learning about language way before the, they way before they can talk. So before they're understanding spoken words, children are really watching um, the movements of people around them, listening to your tone of voice, um, and really making sense of the world through the actions that they see. And so really, you know, hitting home this point that parents and, uh, you know, caretakers should really be talking to their children from the earliest ages, from infancy, from birth, and that that really provides a foundation for language development and literacy. And then as children get older, you know, talking about, um, talking with your child about feelings in different settings. So this is one thing, again, a practical tip that we offer in the book about, um, you know, when you're reading a book with your child or watching a movie with them, you know, just highlighting and asking questions about the character's feelings. How do you think that character is feeling? Why do you think they're feeling that way? And maybe what, you know, what could somebody do to make them feel better? So things like that, simple, simple things like that, like asking questions and talking about emotions in everyday settings is one way that we offer, again, a practical tip in the book um, to help parents and caretakers and educators really support and develop children's social emotional skills. Is this different than it? I'm talking, I'm sort of going back to the post pandemic, and I know you talk about it in, in the book too. I mean, when you have anxiety levels are really high with children and with parents post pandemic, the world is changing. Uh, schools are changing. Parents are home part time. Kids are home sometimes just because kids test positive at school. So there's all this back and forth emotional stuff that kids and parents have to adjust to. How does that impact what you're talking about? I mean, what you're talking about is critical and important, but in the context of all of this stuff, you know, the, the, this changing emotional climate, how can parents do that? How can they adjust? Yeah, no, again, a really great question. And, and you know, it's interesting that the timing of our book, actually, Rachel and I had the idea and motivation to write this book before COVID. So we didn't, you know, we didn't write it sort of in response to COVID, but the timing just happened to work so that we realized that the timing of the book, you know, it coming out sort of, you know, as we are hopefully getting into this new phase of, of COVID and learning to, you know, learning to live with it in our daily lives um, and it not, you know, having, having to impact every aspect of our life. Um, we realized that it was more important than ever because, yes, parents are living in such a stressful time right now, not only because of COVID, but so many other factors in our world. And I think that, again, one of the key things we talk about in the book is a way to support children's social and emotional development is really through play and really remembering that children learn, learn through play, but also, again, going back to the emotion factor, children are experiencing, young children in particular, I think, are experiencing a lot of really scary emotions that they may not know how to express, right, in, through words, through language, but just, you know, being confused by those and by engaging in, in different types of play, whether that's dramatic play or fantasy play or just physical play, they're able, that's a safe space for them to then express 
those emotions and maybe a safe place for them also to talk about them, um, you know, obviously at certain ages, you know, with their, with their caregivers, with their parents, with their teachers, with their peers is really important as well. So that's another, you know, tip that we talk about in the book is really thinking about different ways for children to, you know, express emotions, especially negative ones, you know, fear and anxiety and sadness um, and ones that maybe, you know, they haven't experienced or they've been experiencing even more um, during the pandemic. What about the parents? How, what does their emotional and social growth have to do with it? You know, some parents are really good at being able to do that, depending on who they are and how healthy emotionally they are. What about parents who don't have some of those skills themselves or who aren't good at that, you know, who are much more maybe academically focused because they don't really want to talk about their own emotions. You know, they have difficulty doing that. So sort of asking them or helping them to, to be aware, I would assume, of their own feelings. How does that work? I mean, you, have, you know, parents emotionally run the gamut in terms of their own skills in parenting. Yeah, no, again, a really great question. And I think that some of the, um, you know, some of the tips and advice that we offer in the book are really around mindfulness. Um, and so maybe this is a nice opportunity to talk about in the book, it's divided into two different parts. So in the first part, we talk about, we have several chapters that talk about different areas of research. So those, so those are theory of mind, language development, executive function. So those are skills like uh, self-control and focus and memory. But then in the second part of the book, what we do is we talk about um, a framework that we developed to call it the mind framework. And so each letter stands for, you know, a, a different component so M stands for mindfulness. And so in, that, in, the, in the chapter that we talk about mindfulness, we really talk about taking time to observe your own thoughts and feelings as a parent, as a, as a caregiver, maybe as an educator, you know, without immediately reacting. And we're usually talking about immediately reacting to, you know, an experience that you're having with your child, right? So we offer tips about mindfulness, how to start, you know, or maybe develop your own mindfulness practice as a parent, as a, as a caregiver, and then also how to sort of teach your child about, about mindfulness and then how to do that practice together to sort of strengthen your caretaker child bond. So Can you give us an thing, example one of that? Part of the book, Can you, you know, that we a... really focus on parents as well. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I'd like, an, let's talk about an example. It, it put that in a, in a, in a scene, parent, child, and, and give us an example of, because uh, I think one of the things you just said is really important, not reacting immediately to what your child is, is doing or shouldn't be doing. And so how do we do that? You know, we need to get into this mindfulness state. Put it, the, give us an example. Yeah, so, you know, I guess a typical example is you're at the, you know, grocery store or supermarket um, with your child and they are, you know, wanting to get something or put something in the cart and you don't want them to do that. And, you know, and so they, they throw a tantrum, they get upset, right? And so while it may be really hard in the moment not to immediately respond, you know, and maybe, you know, raise your voice at, at your child. Our, you know, the mind, the mind framework really says, take a minute to just, you know, take a deep breath and think about, you know, what is it? Is there something that your child 
is, is there a need behind what they're doing? Maybe they're hungry, right? They skip their snack or it's just a particular time, a, a difficult time of day that you're with them, right? So really thinking about how to respond to your child and knowing that your response doesn't have to be immediate. So, you know, taking time to just, you know, get out of that aisle, get away from the stimulus that's upsetting your child. And then thinking about really what's behind is, is your child's uh, behavior, you know, developmental or is it what we call intentional, right? So is there some developmental need that they're, maybe they're frustrated, they can't actually express exactly what they want. And maybe that's behind why, why they're getting so upset that they're not actually able, they don't have the words yet, or they don't, you know, you're not, you're not really understanding what they are wanting and that's why they're getting upset. So we talk about M for mindfulness. We talk about the I in the mind framework is for inquiry. So really, again, asking questions, asking questions about the situation and why your child might be acting as they're acting. Um, so is that along the lines of an example that you're, that you're talking about? Yeah, that's a perfect example. And, and as you said, or I guess you alluded to, there may be, you know, the behavior might seem the same, but it's different in a, maybe a three-year-old who doesn't have the language skills, uh, different uh, interpretation of the response, I guess, uh, as a 10-year-old, two different things. Right. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely thinking about, and that's, that's a, you know, something we, we, again, we, we talk about in the book in terms of really we're trying to give parents more tools and more understanding and knowledge about different developmental stages and what your child may or may not understand, which could help explain their behavior in different situations. And also I'm thinking of the parents. I mean, let's say you take the, the, the caregiver, mother, father, whoever it is, and, their state of mind at that moment, let's say they're racing around, they came home from work, they took their kid and took them to the grocery store and they're hassled and they want to get out of there. Their state of mind is going to be different than say the caregiver who has not been in that kind of a situation, who has been relaxed and calm to begin with when they got to the grocery store with the child. Um, and that will have an impact on their relation, uh, you know, on their response. So the, another reason to be mindful of where you are as the caregiver, what, what state of mind you're in. Yes, definitely. And that, again, hits home this, this sort of practice of mindfulness in, in sort of not only being an observer of, you know, of the experience overall and what your child, trying to put yourself in the, you know, sort of perspective of your child, trying to sort of get into their head and think about the experience from their perspective. So we also talk a lot about perspective taking, not only as a caregiver and as a parent, but then trying to do that, you know, through, with, with your child. And so, yes, recognizing, you know, what state you are in. And if you're, you know, when you're, we encourage parents sort of not to respond or trying not to respond when they feel that sort of energy of tightness and you're sort of ready to explode, right? That's sort of not the right moment um, <laughs> probably to, to be responding and interacting with your child. And there are probably more incidences like that uh, can, you know, as we talked about in the beginning of the uh, interview, that parents are under so much stress themselves, you know, post-pandemic, all of those kinds of things and, and, and many other kinds of things that are happening in our society now so that it's a really stressful time, not just as an individual or as parents or as caregivers, but just in terms of the whole culture. And, and that has a huge impact, I think, um, 
and, and we need to learn how to navigate it, which is what you're talking about in the book. I mean, your approach has been yeah. called, uh, yeah, a mole, a break, your, your innovative approach has been described as uh, breaking the mold on parenting. So is this all new? I mean, all new theory, or how does this fit into what we already know in terms of developmental psychology? Well, I would say that it's not, you know, the research that we highlight and talk about, it, it's not new. It's what we're trying to do is, and what Rachel and I as, you know, early childhood educators and researchers and practitioners, um, the motivation for us to write the book was that we, you know, we know about this research and we've seen it, especially for Rachel as a, as a have, having many years as a classroom teacher and administrator, um, has seen the power of taking research findings and applying those to classroom classroom practices and parenting practices. And so we wanted to get this research out to a wider audience, really, and really make it accessible um, and hopefully enjoyable for, for parents and caretakers and educators to learn about. So the research itself is not new. I would say that maybe, you know, yes, we talk about the mind framework as innovative and different because what we tried to do is then take that research and, again, put it into a framework that's easy for parents and caretakers to remember and hopefully, you know, put into practice in a, you know, in a very regular daily, daily practice. So that's why we talk about, you know, the M for mindfulness, I is for inquiry, N is for non-judgment. We often default to sort of what we call blame and shame and criticism, right? Just really not thinking about that or try not to, you know, bring that into your parenting practices. And then D is for decide in terms of being, trying to be really intentional about how you respond, how and when you respond to your child. So I think that also an overarching message that we try and get across in the book is that parenting requires a ton of patience, right? And, and that's just something that maybe, you know, has gotten left behind or that we forget about. And there's no perfect parent and that some days, yes, you'll be, you know, great at sort of implementing and taking pieces of the mind framework and using that in your parenting and your interactions with your child. And other days, probably not so much, right? And so really making space to be patient with yourself. And with your with your child and your children is really important in this whole process. Well, the more you do it, I'm assuming it becomes more spontaneous. The more you sit back and and as you say, uh, well, getting into the end, being non-judgmental, because I think that applies to a, a lot of our parenting. It's not really a skill. We don't want to be non-judgmental. We want to be non-judgmental, not judgmental. So, give us an example of that judging the child. When do we do that? How often does that occur usually in, uh, with pa yeah, parents? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it often occurs maybe without really thinking about it too much, right? So we, give, we, have, we start many of the chapters in the book with sort of like a story, right? Like a scenario that probably sounds somewhat familiar to a lot of parents. And so one of the stories we have in the book is about, you know, you, a parent that picks her child, young child, um, up at preschool, and the child, you know, has a typical pattern that in the preschool classroom, she does really well, she pays attention, um, but then for some reason, as soon as she leaves the classroom, she sort of lets, lets everything go, right, and, and cr may cry or, you know, sort of throw a tantrum or just is upset. 
right? And then, you know, as the parent is walking the child out of the classroom, other parents see this, right? And then the parent gets in the car with their, with their child and, you know, feels sort of this shame and, and, and judgment, you know, thinking like, oh, what are the other parents thinking? You know, they must think I'm a, a terrible parent. My kid is crying every day when they leave the classroom. And so, you know, we just, we, we talk about being aware of that and trying to sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, put that into the background. And again, really thinking about what is it about this transition, right, that's really upsetting my child? Is it the time, the particular time of day that's happening? Maybe there's something about, you know, just having a hard time between leaving the classroom and getting in the car and going home. Is there something, you know, is there something that, you know, we could do to make that transition easier? Um, is there something, you know, the teacher maybe could end the class a little differently that would make it easier for my child to leave the class? Is there something that maybe... Um, you know, a favorite toy or something that I could bring when I pick up my child so that they see something really comforting and that would make the transition easier. You know, so thinking about things like that, and again, thinking about at that age, a young child, like what are their needs? Maybe they're really hungry when they get out of school and that's sort of making them, you know, sort of moody. So bringing a snack for them to have in the car on the way home. So really trying to be aware of this, you know, sort of shame and blame and criticism and judgment that we might, might often sort of tinge our response and, you know, make us really think about that and spin on that and, and think about like, you know, what are the other parents thinking instead of focusing on that, really thinking about what is behind, you know, my child's behavior. And again, it's probably something to do with this transition that happens every day. And, and is there something that could help ease that transition? Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. I think transition is is difficult for many people, adults. Maybe they, they haven't learned how to handle that, as you say, in their childhood. I think another thing, and as a social worker, I, I've heard parents say, well, they're great in school. They behave. I, the teacher doesn't complain. They follow the rules and regulations, whatever they happen to be in that school. But the minute they get home, they're acting out, not just even in transition and coming home, but even at home. And the behavior mm -hmm. is so different at home than it is in school. And why? Um, that's often um, a question that um, that 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 we get, or that I've gotten. In, in um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think as you know, as a parent. So I have two daughters who are who are now teenagers. But you know, I remember when they were younger. Um, and even today as teenager, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that could, could drive that one is that, you know, a lot of children thrive with structure, right? So there's often more structure in a classroom environment, um, you know, depending on the type of school that your child goes to and how old they are. But, you know, often there is like just more structure in the classroom, like there's different periods of the day, or even in a preschool classroom, there's, you know, the morning welcome time, and then they have free time, and then they have snack. Right. And children typically know or get, you know, once they they've been in the classroom for a while, know that structure. And so for a lot of kids, it's very comforting to them to know what to expect. But then maybe when they come home, um, you know, it's, it's a less structured environment. And in many ways, that's a good thing. Right. Like, again, going back to talking about play, kids need that sort of unstructured time to engage in free play and to, you know, explore what interests them and what motivates them. 
So I'm not in any way, you know, advocating for having your child, especially for young children, have a very structured day from morning to night. But I think what I'm saying is that for some children, you know, having some sort of routine or schedule or structure, even when, um, you know, they're, they're at home and not in school, could be helpful. Again, not for all children, but that's maybe one factor that, that goes into that. And then the other factor, I think, is that, um, you know, depending on your family structure, there's something, there's really something to be said about children in, in the school environment and peers, right? So they're around their peers, they're interacting with peers, and maybe, again, that's something for, for, children, for a lot of children that drives their, um, you know, their behavior, and maybe when they don't have that at home, um, that's something also, there's a factor there. So always thinking about the environment, which includes, very importantly, you know, sort of the people in that environment. Yeah. And the unconditional love we have to assume that parents and caregivers have for the child, which the teacher doesn't have, nor do their peers. You have to behave, yeah. you know, you're, yeah. So, mm -hmm. and that makes a huge difference. You can exactly. do what you want. Yeah. You can do what you want when you're at home. Um, now that the last thing, the D let's talk about the D in mind. Yes. So D, we, we talk about really being intentional about how you respond to your child's actions. So um, we talk about really being um, clear and thinking about the timing of that response. So by being clear, like this may sort of seem obvious, but for example, if you respond to your child by saying something like, oh, we always want to be kind to our friends. Well, for maybe a very young child, they don't really know what that means yet right? Like the, the, they may have heard the word kind, right? But they're not sure what that means in action. So, you know, giving an example um, or, you know, or using that word in context with their child a lot, um, maybe, maybe great. So again, when, you know, reading a book or watching a movie with their child, oh, that character was really kind, you know, to, to their sibling, because when they saw that their sibling was upset, they brought their favorite blanket over, or they tried to comfort them in some way. Right, so really using the word in context. I mean, in general, we know that that's the way that children learn language and learn words um, by hearing them in different, used in different contexts. Um, but also the timing of a reaction, often knowing, and, and this is maybe especially relevant for slightly older children, you don't have to respond to a situation right away. And maybe in the heat of the moment when you as a parent and caretaker or caregiver are upset and your child's very upset, Maybe that's not exactly the right moment to sort of talk about what happened and why it happened, but maybe just, you know, sort of trying to diffuse the situation at the moment and then leaving some time for everybody to calm down and then later revisiting the situation and talking about, hey, so, you know, you got really upset when your Lego tower fell over before, you know, let's sort of talk about maybe, you know, you know, why that happened or what, you know, next time what you could do you know, to a different response. So right? in reading so the book, and we, have to say, we only have a couple minutes left, but we're going to learn uh, helping parents just overall to gain more patience, to be more patient with their children, respond less reactively, and just be more joyful as a family. Um, and this book definitely has all the tips and tools to be able to do that, the emotionally intelligent child Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Awareness, Cooperative and Well-Balanced Kids. Um, Dr. Helen Hadani, 
uh, Dr. Hadani, just could you give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about you, your work, and the book? Yes, great. So for my work, as you mentioned, I'm a fellow at the Brookings Institution. So you can go to brookings.edu to find out more about uh, the work that I do. And the book, our, our wonderful publisher is New Harbinger Publications. So you can go to um, New Harbinger's uh, website to find out more about the book. And then it's available, you know, wherever books are sold, Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble. Um, and thank you so much again for, for having me on your show to talk about the book and our work. Great. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 